0: It's May 1983. You feel the evening breeze on your face and hear the hum of New York City as the day draws to a close. Your heart is pounding. You feel the blood racing through your veins. You feel sick from the guilt and the shame. You feel the flickers of the bare flame of the candle in your hands. The distant sound of O Fortuna, the music chosen for this vigil. A song complaining about the inescapable power of fate. This candle symbolises their life. But could tomorrow come to symbolise your life? Our lives? Is this a symbol of burning love for another fallen? Is it a symbol of our burning anger because another was lost? Does it symbolise the darkness we live in in society? Our hidden life, our non-recognition? Once every 12 minutes, people are dying and nothing is being done, you feel helpless, petrified about what tomorrow will bring. Or will this flame that's burning fast, will it come to represent our existence? Is this the inescapable power of our fate? This time was different. Apuzo concluded this vigil with a rousing speech. It offered lesbian and gay men a new political imaginary that included confrontational activism. If something isn't done soon, we will not be here in Federal Plaza at night in this quiet. We will be on Wall Street at noon. No politician will be immune to a community who will not take no for an answer. Gay people have had to be self-reliant if for no other reason than they are intentionally and systematically denied their rights. This time, the vigil ended and we moved to the streets to chant. 1983 was a blip, a sudden loss of control. We moved back into invisibility. This podcast will firstly analyse the social and political pedagogies that played a factor in the rise of ACT UP and their tactics, by analysing the movement from resource mobilisation and collective identity theory. And secondly, it will look at how the movement laid the foundations for the politicisation of the AIDS epidemic today, by changing the US government's domestic priorities, which then led to change in the global health policy. It will seek to challenge the discourses about what confounded and collapsed the movement and show that what looked like the disintegration of the movement made from an angle of resonance have been one of the most important legacies it left behind. It all started when an unknown disease, now known as AIDS, reared its fatal head in 1981 as cases of rare pneumonia and cancer that attacked five gay men in America. AIDS activism started with grassroots activism carried out by the affected communities and as Richard Parker notes, it emerged on the heels of the 1970s struggle for gay liberation. To understand how AIDS activism culminated in the direct action protest by ACT UP, Professor Deborah Gould has argued that the emotional habitus needs to be considered to identify the movement's sense of political possibilities. Gould acknowledged that after Stonewall, there was a general shift away from gay liberation and radical left politics. Focus on the legislative realm became central and the politics of respectability emerged. AIDS brought gay men's sexual practices under the heteronormative society's microscope. It reinvigorated the shame and the self-hatred within the community. The early years of AIDS activism is epitomized by this statement made by the gay men's health crisis in 1983. It emphasizes the focus on respectability, countering social stigma and the gay image. We are showing the world that the gay community is as cohesive, strong, determined and responsible as any other. So what changed in 1987 that meant gay men were more receptive to direct action? As Andreas Philomopoulos Mihalopoulos argues, public order is an anesthetic, but not everyone can remain anesthetized. For some people, it becomes a matter of life and death. Resource mobilization theory emphasizes the importance of resources in the development of social movements. The theory argues that you need more than a common injustice to start a movement, because there's always a disgruntled group but this doesn't necessarily lead to a movement. You need resources, such as people, experience, time, money, and access to external resources. The strand of resource mobilisation that is most applicable to the formation of ACT UP is the political theory by Tillian McAdam. Resource mobilisation states that movements arise out of a change in the group's resources and the opportunity for collective action. Grievances become secondary. But the political theory accepts the importance of individual grievances to the extent that they provide opportunities and networks which contribute to mobilisation. When looking at ACT UP, close attention ought to be paid to the movement's demographic. Patricia Siplon, St Michael's College, Professor of Political Science and Director of Public Health.
1: Not the most invisible gay men in the community. They were men who otherwise had a lot of power, most of them because they were middle-class, because they were used to sort of a certain level of privilege and and it got yanked away from them. That created an anger sort of circumstance.
0: Under this analysis, ACT UP emerged from the political and societal disenfranchisement of white middle-class gay men and their relative deprivation. This change in political context, where the gay community were under attack with a mortality rate that was thought to be close to 100%, Anti-gay policies such as the Orphan Drug Act, that prioritised profit over people and the infamous Supreme Court decision in Bowers and Hardwick that upheld sodomy laws meant that this new political climate led to opportunities for the aggrieved but already cohesive gay community and this led to the formation of ACT UP. AIDS reduced the consequences of participating in direct action as the politics of respectability and the idea of adding gay men and lesbians into society and stirring was no longer a viable option the political climate was right for direct action. Someone was dying every 12 minutes. There was widespread inaction. The community were outraged and they had resources to mobilize and nothing to lose. From the angle of resonance, Cramer's speech said the right thing at the right time. It wasn't revolutionary. He called for direct action with the Puzo in 1983. What was different was the community's loss of faith in the governmental institutions and the change in the socio-political climate started the movement under resource mobilization activist actions become rational the costs and rewards of different types of activism are weighed up and the availability of external resources such as the media influence the tactics which are adopted the essential resources that the white middle class demographic bought were as josh gampson states that have been born of participation rather than exclusion that had knowledge of how to disrupt american society using its own vocabulary ACT UP deployed tactics which would disturb middle-class America. They engaged in demonstrations they knew that large city newspapers with the middle-class readership would cover because they were themselves middle-class readers. As Craig Jenkins identifies, movements need to balance being outlandish and gaining press coverage but risking exclusion, and being conventional and persuasive but being ignored. ACT UP realised the open system of a movement and the influence of external factors in shaping their success. They used the media and TV to shape their activism by adopting an inside-outside tactic. They ensured that outside they used street theatre, graphics and chants to capture the media's attention. But in using these chants, they conveyed their message succinctly in the few seconds of airtime that they would receive. However, resource mobilisation theory becomes problematic when looking at personal change movements. The
1: key reasons that the AIDS activist movement was successful in the first place is that it was, it was essentially two movements in parallel. There was a policy-directed larger structural movement and there was a very personal self-empowerment movement.
0: How social movements arise and why they're successful does depend largely upon resources and the opportunity for a movement, but it's more nuanced than this. Resource mobilisation focuses on the structural shifts that give rise to the resources that are needed for collective action. But the theory fails to explain why. Collective identity has been used to explain the non-national reasons why people join social movements. As Gilbert Albaz has recognised, we need to look at the way the two social movement theories operate dialectically. It becomes clear from the demographic of ACT UP that the movement isn't just about resources. There's a confluence of social movements stemming from marginalised, non-hegemonic groups within society that have gathered around common grievances and conceptions of domination, and each brought with them resources. These resources and tactics can't be disconnected from the movement's prior activism. Models of strategic choice under resource mobilisation overlook the fact that the tactics reflect the group's collective identity podcast will now outline some of the most prominent social movements that joined ACT UP and explore their commonality, tactics and conceptions of domination that they brought with them, which influenced ACT UP's tactics and ideology and conception of domination within biomedical research, that capitalistic structures directed research and secondly the recognition that knowledge and expertise was used as a method to withhold power and keep them out. The most obvious motivation for activism was a close nexus with AIDS, a response to loved ones dying, or people with AIDS that couldn't get treatment due to slow-paced scientific research and federal bureaucracy. AIDS activists joined ACT UP as they wished to turn to more direct action after the politics of respectability in the early years resulted in little change. Most significant was the influence of Lavender Hill Mob, who led the first chapters of the movement. They already had experience orchestrating demonstrations. They led criticisms of domination within the government that condoned the AIDS crisis through their inaction with the medical institutions that discriminated against people with AIDS. They saw domination within heteronormative society, where the church used AIDS to condemn homosexuality as unnatural. They brought with them tactics such as the ZAP, which involved direct confrontation with a politician or corporate leader, which could then be captured by the media. Act have learned from the anti-war and civil rights movements that civil disobedience, which included a risk of arrest, would attract the media. They tailored activism to utilise external resources and at rallies, they would direct media outlets to designated spokespersons, holding a sign from each state because they knew that this would localise a national protest and ACT UP would be front cover. They utilised inside-out strategies where they ensured that outside there would be a mass direct action demonstration with chants. Black, white, gay, straight. AIDS does not discriminate. Women with AIDS under attack. What do we do? ACT UP, fight back. The gay and lesbian communities also found commonality with ACTA. Lesbians did
1: see this commonality. It wasn't because of the, the actual impact, but the policy responses you know, were not nuanced. It was just, they were anti-gay. When government is coming down on gay men and lesbians, then we got to respond. This is existential for us.
0: The leader of the Gay Action Alliance joined ACTA and encouraged members to support the movement following Bowers and Hardwick. This case had a multiplier effect because of how anti-gay norms became pervasive in society. The judiciary is meant to be impartial and uphold civil rights, but they reinforced and legitimated anti-gay policies. They found commonality due to their emotional connection as a marginalised group. The hegemonic class had constructed gay men and lesbians as outsiders through anti-gay policies. They brought with them tactics that reconstructed and reclaimed. They took protests to heterosexual safe havens, where the gay community was not expected. ACT UP took the pink triangle, a symbol used by Nazi Germany to demarcate gay people by tattooing them, and they reclaimed it. In reclaiming this symbol used to mark death, they took control over defining the cause of death. Banner stated that homophobia was the cause of AIDS deaths, This symbol was a political attack on the Reagan administration by likening their serious consideration of tattooing those HIV positive to that of Nazi Germany. A tattoo was equivalent to a death sentence because it would drive gay men further underground. They reclaimed the blood in demonstrations, blood that had connotations of being pure and corruptible by AIDS, and they turned it into blood on the government's hands. Feminists found commonality with ACT UP as part of the fight for control over your own body. It wasn't only due to the opportunity for collective action, but also because of their social identity as outside of the hegemonic class. They'd been systematically prevented from participating in medical trials and drug research.
1: That self-empowerment strain just came straight out of feminist organising and activism. On that larger structural movement, women who identified as lesbians also helped shape a number of the early points of early campaigns, like broadening the definition of what AIDS was.
0: They helped act up to identify one of the central cultural relations of domination, the dichotomy of knowledge, which kept activists and people living with AIDS out of policy and decision making out of scientific research and therefore perpetuated the withholding of treatment. The women's health movement was pivotal in one of the greatest achievements by ACTA, the deconstruction of the patient and doctor binary and the model of victimhood and dependence. It grounded all of the successes of the movement as it taught them to go in as experts and equals and hence adopt inside out tactics. It ultimately led to the scientific community and Department for Health and Human Services adopting their proposal of parallel and middle track in the 1990s.
1: ACT UP is this concept of moving out of the realm of charity and into the realm of rights.
0: With the influence of prior social movements resources, in particular their tactics and conceptions of domination, ACTUP saw the opportunity to break down the knowledge-power dichotomy and the blind faith in pharmaceutical companies when looking at domination within capitalistic structures. They sought to challenge the conflict of interest and the morality of governmental policies and pharmaceuticals profiteering on the back of the AIDS epidemic. It laid the foundations for the internationalisation of their work in the second wave of AIDS activism. Tensions were high. Cramer's speech was only 14 days ago. It's the 24th of March, 1987. Today is the birth of ACT UP. It's the midst of New York morning rush hour, the time chosen to cause the most disruption. Hundreds of us gathered, here to critique the capitalistic structures that maintain power over treatment, that was the difference between life and death for an ever-increasing number of communities. The people stood chanting, release those drugs. The screeches of traffic as they halted to a stop. The sirens of the police growing ever closer. The movement encapsulated the ideologies of ACT UP, that this movement was about resources. They wanted to try to redefine and reclaim. They took Wall Street, the centre of the American economy, the American Dream's palace, and they redefined it as a place of profit over people, dollars over death. The enemy was the pharmaceutical companies that were slow to release drugs and profiteering on a community's lives. Particularly Burroughs Welcome, that charged $13,000 a year for AZT. The company had taken out a 17-year patent, extending its monopoly through to the 21st century. But the protest was also directed at governmental policies, such as the Orphan Drug Act, which allowed 63% of costs to be recouped as tax credit. It was about opposing the domination, which inhibited and perpetuated the community's access to resources. An effigy of Frank Young, the FDA commissioner, dangled from the church. It was a political threat. It foreshadowed the extent to which they would go to change political support. ACT UP knew about the knowledge-power dichotomy, which was used as a tool to dominate and control the populace. So the distributed flyers stating their demands, policy changes and proposed policies. These demands included the release of life saving drugs by the FDA, the availability of affordable drugs, public education and enacting policies to end AIDS related discrimination. Shortly after the protest, the FDA announced that it would shorten its drug approval process by two years. This signified that direct action and educating themselves would bring about change. It would give them social factor and recognition. In 1988, ACT UP returned to Wall Street to repeat the demonstration with the same demands, as Borough's welcome hadn't lowered their prices. But this time, 100 people were arrested, and it was the first time that ACT UP gained significant media coverage. Over two years, despite increasing direct action, such as targeting Borough Welcome's headquarters, pharmaceuticals and transients persisted but in September 1989, activists stopped trading on the New York Stock Exchange by chaining themselves to the VIP balcony and blowing fog horns so the opening bell couldn't be heard. Their hunger banner, sell welcome. Four days after the demonstration, Burroughs welcome lowered their price of AZT by 20%. So how did ACTIP influence the construction of AIDS as we know it today? How did activism influence global health policy and the politicisation of the epidemic? As demonstrated in part one, movements don't arise in a linear way. Emergent causality is central. When looking at movements, legacies and successes, these aren't linear either. ACT UP's ideologies were aimed at deconstructing models of victimhood and dependence, which were maintained by the knowledge power dichotomy and they framed AIDS as a human rights issue. When looking at the movement's legacy, ACT UP have been heavily criticised in academic discourse for the group's identity which has been blamed for the disintegration of the movement. Their legacies have often been confined to their contribution towards gay and lesbian rights. But based on the theory of resource mobilisation, when the availability of resources and social structure change, this necessitates the decline of a movement. What is often overlooked is the continued work of ACT UP in the access arena. ACT UP argued that AIDS required an exceptional response to protect the rights of those infected, by underscoring the need for the commitment of resources. It gave rise to AIDS exceptionalism. International response has been unprecedented.
1: If you look at the budget numbers from the time of Clinton up through Bush and forward, especially for the United States, but because the United States finally opened its purse, it did it around global health because it was being pushed on global health. Those numbers, they didn't just double, they went up by factors of 10 and 20 and 30.
0: They framed AIDS as a human rights issue and gained support from public health officials who feared that stigma would prevent those at risk from getting tested and that those infected would be prevented from accessing health services, which would drive the disease underground. Traditional public health measures, such as isolation and quarantine, would be fatal. In the 1980s, public health adopted a human rights framework which accounted for societal based vulnerability. As Lazzarini stated, HIV was so exceptional, public health officials agreed that policy should cater to the uniqueness of the epidemic. Public fear was so great the political power of gay men so substantial and concern over stigmatisation so real. ACT UP the government using the 14th amendment by arguing that refusing care couldn't rationally be to protect healthcare professionals from infection due to the ways in which AIDS is and importantly is not transmitted. They sought to establish that healthcare is a right and use the ICSCR's right to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. They sought to rely on the right to life to gain access to treatment, as it was life or death. In the 1990s, they focused on the global AIDS issues. The highest attainable standard to health, and thus the right to life, shouldn't be determined by your place of birth. So it wasn't that when the North gained access, activism stopped, but it changed its focus and it redefined itself. Resource mobilisation advocates that as understandings develop, analysis of domination become more defined which alters the ideologies and the tactics that are employed. Here, activists widened their scope and they saw that domination was drawn along the Brent Line, dividing the Global North and the Global South, where 90% of those with HIV living in low-income countries had no access to treatments due to patents. New York, Philadelphia and Paris formed the Health Global Access Project and objected US trade policies which promoted US pharmaceutical patents. They revealed the government's threats to withhold foreign development aid and restrict trade for any infringements to US pharmaceutical patents, and in particular their targeting of South Africa that was on the watch list. Similar to the protests on Wall Street and against Burroughs Welcome, it attacked the government for working in concert with pharmaceutical companies and implementing policies that prioritise profit over people. HealthGap participated in direct action by adopting tactics such as the ZAP when they disrupted Al Gore's presidential campaign. Gore played a leading role in negotiations with Mbeki to persuade the government of South Africa to change the law allowing parallel imports of generic drugs. HealthGap showered his campaign with blood money and banners with Gore's greed kills ACT up badgered Gore until he convinced the administration to stop pressuring in South Africa and asked for an increase in global aid spending. They subsequently got invited to discuss their concerns and when Bush won the presidential election, he adopted the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. Their angle of domination and framing AIDS an issue of rights gained traction internationally, where their attack on Gore was publicized globally. It portrayed pharmaceutical companies and the West as the enemies and it enunciated not only public order that was maintained through the knowledge-power dichotomy within America, but global public order that maintained the Brent Line. By framing AIDS as a right, activism led the Brazilian courts to rule that the state should pay for AIDS medicines based on the right to health and life. ACT planted the seeds for the politicisation and securitization of AIDS. Whilst their legacy is often confined to the progress made for the gay community, this in a way serves to perpetuate the discourse that claims that its exclusive identity led to its failure and it doesn't recognise the reshifting and re and therefore ACT influence in the global arena for access today.
1: Current COVID activism is in some cases still the same people and certainly many of the same ideas, the same tactics.
0: It's only in light of COVID-19 conferences about vaccine access that their deconstruction of the model of victimhood and construction of pharmaceuticals as the enemies that becomes visible again and it demonstrates another of their vital legacies.